0: Hello everyone and welcome to a long overdue episode of Yes Sir Hater. My name is Mark and I am with... Yes, it's me, Dennis, back in Jersey now after my uh, six weeks of being in Asia. There you go. So now you know the reason why we have been taking a little bit of a break uh, because Dennis was back in Asia meeting good friends. Uh, and uh, what what was the highlight of the trip for you then? Well, everything really. Um, you know,
1: seeing all you guys, um, nice to get back to Singapore and know that I've got so many good friends there. And um also um to um get away from the British winter, and that's a big plus, and enjoy the sun and the vibrancy of Asia, really. Everything was good.
0: Nice. Okay, so uh yeah, so now it's back into the groove. Uh, and I think we should be all right, we should be able to pick it up. Uh, from where we stopped, I'm not sure what episode we are at right now, but it's already... Uh, we are recording this on the 24th of February. Can you imagine we're almost in March already, in 2023?
1: That's yeah. quite amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so let's jump straight into it. Um, I think today, let's redo something, let's revisit something that we talked about, I think, in a previous episode about formative assessment. Uh, But today, I want to focus a little bit more on this idea of assessment as learning. And the title that I came across of the article was, uh, What is Assessment as Learning? Enhancing Teaching with Data. So, I'll, of course, put the link to the article in the show notes so that people can actually know what we are referencing. Uh, But maybe what we can do is let's start with with, with a bit of a refresher then. Uh, so far, we know there are two types of uh, learning, assessment for learning, assessment of learning, uh, which is what we commonly know as summative and formative learning. So maybe can you can just give us a quick run through. Let's talk a little bit about summative learning, which is assessment of learning. What is it? What form does it take? And why does it matter?
1: Yeah, well, basically, summative um, assessment is making a final decision at a point in time on a person's level of performance, competence, understanding. For example, um, when you do your um, driving test, that is summative. Um, On the day, you may not perform to your best, and if you don't meet the criteria, you fail. So that's summative assessment. You can't say to the uh, examiner, well, on Tuesday night when I was with my instructor, you know, I was better than... um, Fernando Alonso it means nothing and it's the same when you do your GC exams or whatever when you set a summative exam what you do at that time that's final if you fail it it's not necessarily the end of the world but you will have to retake it again so that's the key thing about summative assessment whereas formative assessment is where you're being assessed on the same thing with the same methods but it's, you don't pass or fail as such. You do the performance, and then the person who's doing the assessment uh, will say, look, this is what you did right, this is what you did uh, not so well, and these are areas that you need to work on. So the focus is on developing your learning, so when you have to face the summative assessment, you are prepared.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: yes, I think, I think I we are little... all...
0: I think that's your jersey cough that came back. Yeah, and you didn't have right. when you were when you were in rather. Asia.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never had a cough in Asia.
0: Yeah, twenty five years, I don't think. Okay, so then we go to our more popular, I think, rising importance the idea of assessment for learning, uh, also known as formative, uh, learning, uh, I'm sorry, formative assessment, uh, and then of course one of my heroes, uh, in uh, the education world, Dylan, Dylan Williams who during a keynote at the University of Cambridge describes assessment for learning as the pedagogy of contingency. Maybe you can explain that idea a little bit. What do you mean by AFL as the pedagogy of contingency? Well, I mean, when you talk about the word contingency, it's things happening together, isn't it?
1: I think you can go back to um, David Perkins, um, a famous writer in the area of thinking and learning. And what he basically said is that Um, learning and assessment are two sides of the same coin. So if you're talking about assessment as learning, what you're basically saying is, look, we've got to learn something. And when we learn something, we've got to solve a problem. We've got to find out, well, what information do we need? What skills do we need to develop? What resources might be useful? Uh, So you could call that instructional design. But the very process of um doing that is assessing your own learning and the, what you have now and assessing what you need okay. to okay. do okay okay so hang on a second uh? process.
0: Yeah. okay hang on a second uh i think we are jumping ahead uh we are looking at assessment for learning which is formative assessment so uh when he describes it as uh assessment for learning as the pedagogy of contingency uh would it mean that he's actually uh, it, at the core of it is really checking for understanding, uh, and being reactive based on what the students come back with. What do the students come back with? Would it be a fair comment to say that? Yeah, I mean, there is some there's a lot
1: of overlap between when we talk about formative assessment, there's something about assessment for learning, and also something called assessment as learning. Yeah. Now, um, I would probably put Formative assessment in the category of assessment um, for learning, but also as learning, because the, the the gap between the two is more a kind of philosophical gap rather than a real gap. Let's say, for example, um, we you know we train teachers, right?
0: Yeah.
1: We make you know we have to make summative decisions to say at this point in time, given that this is framed now as a summative. Um, assessment process um in in that sense even the summative assessment could be full the next summative assessment right
0: yeah
1: about it however what we typically do when we coach and train teachers we will be working with them in classrooms and at the end of the lesson we might have a cup of coffee or um whatever and we'll go through it we'll get them to self-appraise because what we want to do is to get um, our students, whether they're student teachers or students in classrooms, to actually do self assessment. So, you know, self assessment is part of formative assessment and it's also part of assessment for learning. Because if I'm self assessing, I'm checking that I know things or finding out that I don't know things and then having to plan ways to learn new things. So, uh, it's formative assessment. I'm not going to be judged. Uh, Though you could theoretically have summative assessment of somebody doing formative assessment, you know, philosophically, but let's not worry about that. But equally, if we get students into the process of doing their self-assessment, they are in the process of designing their own learning. Because what they're saying is, I'm going to be assessed on um, um, a part of history, maybe Hitler's rise in Nazi Germany, going to be assessed on that because it's in the learning outcomes i've now got to think about oh i'm going to learn that so the very process of knowing that you're going to be assessed on something can act as a guide to your own learning and in that process you can be doing formative assessment on yourself you can be getting your tutor to doing formative assessment and it's part of so these this formative assessment assessment um Um, for learning and as learning is really a powerful part
0: of a good instructional strategy. Okay. So let's, 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 let's talk a little bit more about assessment as learning, uh, because I'm referring back to the article uh, and you are right. It does say that assessment as learning builds upon the philosophy of assessment for learning. However, there's a greater emphasis placed on feedback and metacognition uh, and, Uh, Author Ruth Dan, 2014, explains, uh, and I quote, it considers how pupils self-regulate their own learning and in so doing make complex decisions about how they use feedback and engage with the learning priorities of the classroom. Now, the idea here is to enable students to begin to learn about themselves as learners. Now, what I think would be interesting would be is We are very clear about summative assessment. We are very clear about formative assessment. In fact, there are strategies, there are methods that we can use for both. What could be some possible strategies or methods that teachers can use to bring the idea of assessment as learning to life? So again, I just wanted to emphasize, it places emphasis on feedback and metacognition. So I know we have done episodes of metacognition, but I think Can we frame that uh, suggestion or some of the things that we can do in a classroom uh, against assessment? Okay, let's let's look at those two things, feedback and metacognition,
1: as elements of human cognition and human activity first. And then let's look at how they work together perhaps synergistically to help the learning process okay so let's take feedback now feedback can come in a number of ways it can be something that's very formalized in other words we watch a teacher teach and at the end of it we say look you didn't activate prior knowledge Um, you did use a video but the video wasn't interactive there wasn't any kind of framing or no advanced organizer for those kind of things so we can be giving them feedback right equally they could be doing their own feedback as well right yep okay and if you like if you can get people to be actively seeking feedback both from self-evaluation now you can only give yourself good feedback on something if you know the criteria of good practice for example um If I'm learning to play the game of tennis, I can go out there and I can be doing discovery learning. I hold a racket, I do stuff, and I'm getting feedback. And the feedback may well be that I'm not getting the ball over the net much, right? Now, that's giving me feedback. So based on that feedback, I then, if I'm being metacognitive, which means is to be aware of your own thinking, and invariably, if you are thinking about your thinking, you're going to be thinking about your learning and also you're going to be thinking about your behavior. That's why modern definitions or what I would say more validated current definitions of metacognition is more than what Flavell in 1976 said, it's thinking about your thinking. Yep. And even Flavell himself said it probably encompasses other psychological components, and that would be things like beliefs, that would be things like emotions, and your ability to self-regulate yourself, not just to think about your thinking. So if we take metacognition in the wider sense, and in the sense the more powerful, um, ways in which it can be used. It's about managing your whole being. It's about being aware of how you feel, how your beliefs may be influencing your learning, about how the fact that you've got a personality type that um, is easily distractible. It's understanding yourself. So when we bring metacognition into this dialogue that more you are capable at metacognition more you are able to see the complexities and the variations of feedback so that way we're getting the benefits of feedback which ultimately boil down to identifying what you do know and can do identifying what you do not know and cannot do and identifying misconceptions that you have that think you know what you're doing right yeah if you think about it that's it isn't it so you've got to get that picture of um, objectivity as best you can. So that's what feedback does. Now, sometimes if you're very good and you know something, like for, for example, me and you, we've done a lot of teaching, right? So we know if we go in the classroom, we're pretty good at giving ourselves feedback because we've got a set of criteria about what good teaching is. But if somebody knows very little about teaching, you know, they just think, oh, I go in and do it, right? When they give themselves feedback, the, they might say, Oh, well, it was really good because I showed my 54 slides, or it was really good that the students didn't disrupt the lesson. So, this is the important point that um, feedback can be very, um, very positive and helpful, but only if somebody knows what the criteria of good performance is. Otherwise, it can be very idiosyncratic and actually quite dangerous because people can think they're being good at something and they're learning well, effectively and efficiently, whereas they're not. So that's where being metacognitive comes in because a person who is metacognitive will know, I don't know much about this. Therefore, my self-evaluation could be quite rudimentary and I need to get more expert feedback, somebody who can, who really knows this activity or really knows this subject, who can make better quantitative, qualitative decisions about my activity because otherwise I might be naively optimistic or
0: pessimistic. Does that make sense? Okay, so it does, but I think there are two questions here that we need to answer. Number one, uh, how is that valuable for learning for students and what benefits? Sh- so, why should I do it as a teacher? What What is the compelling reason why I should do it? That's number one. Uh, and number two, if I wanted to try this out, what could be something simple and specific that I could do as a strategy? So, so let's 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 unpack the first one first. Uh, what is a, a, a compelling reason to do this? How will it help with student learning?
1: Well, we know we know just from Ati's work on. <clears throat> excuse me effect sizes that feedback different types of feedback tutor feedback peer feedback self-assessment self-assessment feedback helps the learning process they've all got ifX sizes in fact self um, self-feedback self-assessment is lower than peer or tutor assessment and that's because sometimes self-assessment might be very poor because you actually don't know much about the subject and you don't know much about giving yourself feedback right but Feedback is a powerful means. Now, we also know that metacognitive strategies also have IFX sizes. That is to look at what you're learning, you're planning it, you're understanding the components of learning. What is the knowledge involved? What kinds of understandings are there? What are the key concepts? Those kind of things. So each of those um, methods, feedback good feedback and good metacognitive strategies, they are so... impactful for learning, because let's, let's, let's get it to very basics. What is learning? Learning is, yeah. I mean, there was an old definition years ago, it's a permanent change in behaviour, right? Okay, the chicken learns not to walk across the road, because you've seen other chickens, or she's seen other, well, it's a she, and chicken? <laughs> um, i seen other chickens walk across the road and get squashed, so it tends not to do that, okay? So that's a permanent change in behaviour, but what we know now about learning, it's it's a little bit more elaborate than that. It is about taking in new information, connecting it to information that's in our long-term memory, and using a process of memory and thinking, which are, again, two sides of the same coin, to connect new information to old information, to have a better understanding of something, or to be more skillful at something, or both, right? Yeah. So if we have that as a view of learning, then... <clears throat> metacognition is uh, underpinned by other types of thinking, isn't it? So when you're metacognitive, you're asking yourself, am I thinking well? And if I'm thinking well, what am I doing? I'm analysing. I'm comparing and contrasting. I'm making inferences and interpretations. I'm evaluating that. They are all types of critical thinking, and it's the critical thinking skills that are the most fundamental, most useful, and most necessary for connecting new information to existing information in your long-term memory system right yeah, so if you're getting students to be metacognitive by definition they're very they must understand what metacognition is, and they must understand techniques of doing it and one important technique very simple one is to slow students brains down in the session and say right let's relax you might even give them a breathing exercise breathing through your nose for four seconds hold it for seven breathe out for eight that slows your mind down and then to say right at the moment we're looking at this problem or we're trying to understand this concept what do we actually know about it what can we do and by asking those questions, and it's the questions that are key um, to this whole thing, that you ask the students questions, you get the students to uh, uh, um, either answer questions or generate questions, because that then identifies what piece of knowledge or what misconception is existing. And you go through the questions, and then where necessary, you will put in input, you could put in the story. You could do an activity. You may need to read something. You may need to do some more practice if it's a skill. And that's how you um, develop the learning. So yeah. questioning, getting students to question themselves, question you, uh, you asking the right questions to find out, well, where is the the, the knowledge, understanding or skill gap? And then you use your instructional strategies and hopefully the students can um, contribute their own strategies that they've used and that's what you want students to do if students are learning good thinking strategies and learning strategies um that's a a a major part of metacognitive capability or having metacognitive or learning to learn skills so that's basically how it works and um, it's a bit like football it's a simple game but to play it well is really hard. And that's why people are very good at it, get paid millions. Now, if you translate that to teachers, teachers who can get students motivated because they make the learning interested, um, teach students and get students to develop the skills of critical thinking and metacognition, which is the regulation of thinking and regulation of self, because there's no point in having students who can think well if they're too lazy or they're not prepared to put in the effort. So teachers who can get students to understand how the learning process works, what metacognition is, how important feedback is, both from the the way they use feedback. And again, you can teach them that when you use feedback, there's different types of feedback. There's feedback that's specific to a task. The feedbacks about about the way you're managing yourself, maybe about the thinking processes that you're using, maybe how to deal with beliefs that are limiting or in some way
0: reducing your
1: capability to to critically think.
0: Right. So, so it sounds okay. So, and and maybe this is time for you to maybe make it clearer for people. It sounds a little bit like discovery learning to some extent. So how is it different? Because I think what you were trying to explain just now, asking questions, triggering their thinking, isn't it a bit like, to some extent, discovery learning as opposed to what people are more familiar with, which is, let me teach you, which is telling? No, not at all, quite the opposite. Look, the last thing, um, the, if
1: if we're going to get students to uh, ask good questions, let's teach them what a good question is. You know, and good questions are very much to do with, you know, how does this work? What's the basis of this? Um, if I take this part out of the system, how would it affect uh, the old system? So you teach students thinking skills, uh, what is analysis, how to do compare and contrast, looking for similarities, looking for differences. Yeah, you. it's much better to use direct instruction. But you can start off by asking students what they already know. What you don't want them is to have to find out and maybe never find out what good thinking is. Um, so this is where good teaching comes into play. You ask students, "Well, what do you know about thinking?" If a student turns around and says, "Well, thinking is uh, thinking out the box, isn't it?" You know, and you say, "Well, what does that mean?" Well, you think out the box and. Well, what else do you think it is? Well, I don't know. Then you know that they've got a very limited knowledge of thinking, and that's where you would explicitly teach in terms of those cognitive processes of analysis, compare and contrast. And then you get them to do deliberate practice in the subject context of, well, let's analyze this historical scenario. Let's look at this equation. What are the various parts? What does the brackets mean? What does the two mean? What does it mean that something's over something else? So that's how you would do that. So direct instruction is the most effective method. But find out what students already know, because if they already know it, then you don't need to um, necessarily bore them with stuff that they already know. So don't sit as just if you just say to go out and find out how to think well, what are they going to do? They pick up a book on cognitive science and they can't possibly understand it because it's so complicated. Teachers should be able to take the the more complicated aspects of a subject, the key concepts and principles and make them more concrete and connect them to the real world of students so students can make that conceptual bridge. And that's what good teachers do because otherwise, why not just say to kids, go in the library and, you know, find a book and read it or go on the internet? Because quite simply, that by going on the internet or simply going to a book doesn't mean that you're able to really understand it. So, um, you yeah, know, that's what good teachers do. They are able to translate lots of knowledge in an area into understandable chunks for students to then process and gradually build
0: understanding to develop increasing competence and expertise. Okay, so to take a leaf out from John Hattie's idea of the Russian doll, so it could mean that it is a mixture of both methods. So number one, let me give you some direct instruction on this. Uh, And then stopping, and then maybe at a strategic time, stopping and saying, okay, so what have we learned so far? Doing, one, a check of where students are at. Uh, And number two, asking reflective questions to get them to think about how they are acquiring that knowledge. And then getting them to maybe create a plan to uh, acquire knowledge that they are still lacking and missing. Would it be fair to say that that would be some form of what we call assessment as learning? Absolutely, yeah, it, it's all putting, if you
1: like, it's a little bit like making a kind of cake. You're putting layers in, and collectively, each layer may just be part of the cake, and if you just add one bit of the layer, it might not taste good. But when you put it all together, or uh, cooking a good curry, right, if you don't put the right ingredients in at the right time, you make a mess of it. So that's the skill of teaching, isn't it, is to be able to put that, that Russian doll strategy together, that connects to the student profile at a given time and it's almost impossible to do that perfectly most of the time what you're trying to do is
0: to get it more or less right most of the time right okay so i'm going to read back from the article uh and just to reinforce what we've just been talking about uh and what it says here is assessment as learning creates reflective students who have the agency to decide on their next learning step. Now, personally, I feel that's important because I think in Singapore, uh, we are trying to get away from what I call the outsourced learning model. And that is where students come into class and really look at the teachers and say, okay, now it's your job to like teach me, so do your magic and I'll automatically learn. But I think we have realized after many years of teaching that students themselves need to play their part. Hence the importance of, you know, the program of which we talked about getting them to learn how to learn. Now I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to share further what is in the article and it says, as with any strategy that seeks to empower learners, assessment as learning is often supported by the teacher at first, which is what we talked about. A successful approach would be to have your learners asking the question, what are the criteria for improving my work? Strategies include but are not limited to regular peer and self-assessment, regular and challenging practice, allowing students to question their own learning and creating an environment where taking chances and risking wrong are promoted. So there are two things that particularly interested me because we have already covered the part about peer and self-assessment, regular and challenging practice uh but maybe let's let's unpack this a little bit more which is allowing students to question their own learning can you give us a little heuristic uh for teachers who are listening to this right now to say okay this is something that i can do and i can try it out immediately in the class Mm -hmm. so just a simple heuristic well the
1: simple heuristic is um what what do we know to be factual and what do we know to be opinion and on what basis Now, a really good example is diet yep. right okay, okay. <clears throat> i mean it's a minefield okay um we know people who uh, study this extensively and we've read a lot of books on it ourselves and the problem is that you'll get some people arguing well it's all about calories in and calories out right and they yep. actually believe this right uh, and then you've got people like um like myself and many others, and going back to Richard Atkins, I think it was, who basically, you know, it, uh, see, well, if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, particularly if it's sugar-based, then you're going to put on weight, right? And then you've got the people that are pure paleo. In fact, um, Jordan Peterson, who we did a podcast on, who is one of the most famous intellectuals of our time, you know he eats all the time? What? Beef only. He
0: does beef eat- only.
1: Only, yeah. And he, he eats some greens as well. That's all he does. His daughter only eats meat. Now, he claims that's quite simply um, that's what makes him feel much better. It's dealt with so many different ailments. Now, you've got other people who say, oh, you shouldn't eat too much meat. Oh, that's bad for you. Now, it, it's a bit of a minefield. Um, so if we want students to um, to be able to... Uh, look at stuff, they've got to be able to look at a range of evidence and say well, you know, what actually is the research what's the basis of the research etc, and be able to come up with, you know, some kind of very good evaluation of all that data, you know, it's it's using the thinking process, the critical thinking skills, in relation to a lot of our work of looking at different knowledge bases, so more we can get students to say, well look If you have a question and you need an answer to it, then you need to look at what evidence is out there. What's the basis of the evidence? What's the currency? Look, learning styles, I mean, it infested education for years. (laughs) We must cater to learning styles. I knew it was nonsense years and years ago. I used to say that at conferences, and people used to treat me like I was kind of infidel. John Attis, because he did such a big piece of research, it was so comprehensive. The analysis and found literally um, no evidence that it was in any way useful. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, the learning styles, that's that's defunct. There's still people there's still people using it, you know, um, but there's still people who believe the world is flat. Well, it, 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 uh, I'm fairly convinced, you know, having traveled around it many times and seen pictures from of space. I actually think it's a sphere. So
0: um, there you go. Okay, so so <laughs> I think it takes I think I think the moral of the story is uh, we need to be consistent in the classroom uh, to really uh, teach students to think uh, be to be a bit more reflective. Uh, and also to equip them with the knowledge and skills to ask these important uh, questions, so that they can uh, really become uh, to have the agency to decide on their next learning step. Uh, so the second one that I think we need to talk about is creating an environment where taking chances and risking being wrong are promoted. That uh, that seems to be quite counterintuitive to some classrooms that we are that we have grown up in. So maybe the idea is, how should teachers do this? How do you exactly create an environment where taking chances and risking being wrong is promoted? Well, uh,
1: let's take this um, seriously. Even though I see the funny side of it in some ways, yeah. because you know a student can say, Look, I believe I can fly, right? Okay. If someone wrote a book, I mean, it was a Singaporean in actual fact, and he, he made a bit of a splash. He wrote a book, Castles Can Fly now they can't right you know so there's a real dangerous thing we want to encourage people to be entrepreneurial to do creative thinking and creative thinking is not thinking out of the box it's coming up with new perceptions from internal neural activity and coming up with new ideas we want people to take some chances but we don't want I believe I can fly and I'm going to take the risk and jump off of an 11 storey building. So we've got to be careful that when we're teaching students about taking risks, well, what type of risk are you taking? Um, to say to a student, well, look, you know, that student saved $10,000 and say, well, you want to understand the stock market? Well, take some risks and do some investing now. I wouldn't say that would be good advice. Now, it's up to the student to decide on that. But, you know, I think kind of as teachers, we've got to get students to actually analyse risk and what the consequences of failure are. Now, we can get students to be writing essays in particular ways or to be... (laughs) doing something where if they make mistakes, there's expectation failure. In other words, they're learning from failure, but we don't want them to be um, suffering physically or mentally in a serious way from taking the risk. So as teachers, we've got to get students to understand, be metacognitive about the concept of risk. For example, if you take gambling, what I've noticed now on television, the gambling sites like William Hill and... um, Paddy power and whatever. They always now have someone that says, gamble responsibly. Well, because they know that gamble, get addicted, and families break up, they lose houses and you know, commit suicide, become alcoholics as a result of losing money. In fact, um <clears throat> I did go to Las Vegas once. I never I never actually gambled. Um it's just that my daughter wanted to go there for a few days. I found it quite boring, to be frank. But I did hear that every week at least one person jumps off their hotel and kills themselves. And the reason is not because they think that they can fly or castles can fly. It's just that they've lost so much money they can't face going home to, you know, their wife or husband or whatever and say, look, we've got to sell the house, you know. So, um, yeah, um but at the end of the day... Um, what, what the what we're trying to do I what you know these companies are saying is well um, look um, if you're gonna gamble then gamble money that you can afford to lose without yeah. that kind of thing so it's, it's getting students really and giving students activities where they're challenged um, but they know what the risks are and um, um, to, and to make good decisions about risk. We don't want to be saying to students, yeah, ride your motorcycle 150 miles an hour and see uh, and see how well you can take a bend. Do we want to do that? So, uh, it's a bland statement. It's, I'll take risks, yeah, but um, there's something called the risky shift hypothesis in psychology, Mark, and what that is is that when you ask people, oh, would you sell your ass and go and live in Singapore? Oh, they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's you, People are very good at encouraging or saying to other people, yeah, take a chance, live dangerously. But they tend not to do it themselves. I mean, when I went to Singapore, you um, – no, I didn't know you when I went there. I think you were just being bald. <laughs> <laughs> I would like so to think so, but you I don't think so. you are. But when I went to Singapore, I actually gave up a senior lecturing job um, that I tenure with and went over with um, a seven-year-old and a two-year-old daughter to a place I've never been to. If I look back on that, I think that's pretty risky. Um, yeah. As it happens, I think it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life, retrospectively. But um, a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, be adventurous. However, most of those, in fact, all of them I know, have never taken that risk. And then when it works out, they say, "God, oh, I wish I would have done that. Now... That's the problem with this whole risk idea, isn't it? There's a lot of things that uh, are involved uh, and all students can be encouraged to do is, from a teaching point of view anyway, is to give them tasks where they may fail and they'll learn from failure. You give them a challenging problem to solve and they don't solve it, maybe, but they learn from that process. Um, But you don't want to give them a task where they fail and end
0: up crippled. Yeah, at this Got it. Okay, so let's wrap up this segment by maybe... uh, Because don't forget when we started, the title of the article is uh, What is Assessment as Learning? And then also the idea of using data to support assessment as learning. So if you read the article, it it is essentially an article that talks about uh, learning analytics, collecting data on student learning, uh, and then uh, how the system... uh, It's called a century system, how the system actually helps uh, teachers identify what uh, issues students have. Now, I'm going to do a bit of a challenge here. Mm
1: -hmm. How
0: can we then now use the learning data that the students produce to help them become more effective learners? So, in other words, how can we use this data to support their assessment as learning? How do you see that happening in in a normal classroom where teachers are already so busy? Right. Okay. Now, this whole area of learning analytics and artificial intelligence,
1: yep. interest, isn't it? Because yep. if you think about it, you know, like when we book an holiday now, you go on booking.com or something like that. And yep. right away, they can aggregate so many things and give you choices, you know, you can put it into budget areas, locations. Right. That's learning analytics. You imagine you had to try to find all that stuff out yourself, take it yep. you out. Hours and hours, so that's learning analytics. So if you take the idea of having data, right? Yep. You imagine having enough data on all the football players, their health, their fitness, their mentality, mindsets, all of these things. If we had all that data just before the match kicked off, would we be more likely to be able to win money on betting on the results? And the answer would probably be yes, right? The yeah. people. Used to, I used to go dog racing occasionally, and the people that made money were people within the dog racing community because they would know which dogs are doing whatever, uh, you know, right to the last <laughs> part of the race. You know, it's called inside the knowledge, isn't it? So, um, um. It's like you know the perfect situation is you're working in a company and you know it's just come up with the most powerful invention ever, and its shares are going to go through the roof next week, and yeah. you know this, and you go to the you know you go and buy ten thousand dollars worth, and all of a sudden they're worth ten million. So you know data is powerful. So let's translate that and say, well, what is the data that students can collect on themselves? The data they can collect what have i been learning and what have i been struggling with and what have i done that's been helping me learning and students can do that individually you can do it as a class and you will identify um the you know the 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 more difficult areas of the content perhaps what strategies are more useful overall for a particular um learning task but that does take time in doing um Obviously. So, for a teacher to be setting up those kind of databases um, would be difficult. Now, invariably, if somebody comes at you, know, you're, you're the boy for coming up with these IT tools. If there is an IT tool that students can just put in the certain data about what they've learned, what they've not learned, and there's an artificial intelligence system that can then say, right, these are particular gaps that you have, things that yep. you tend to get wrong. Uh, and it will go that way. It's going to go. Wrong. it is going that way now. So all it means is that teachers' jobs are, you know, going to become more and more challenging. And, you know, that worries me because what I do know about teaching in the UK, it's got, I think, the highest attrition rate, highest stress rates. And um, unless unless there's a massive change in the way the curriculum is, you know, we're not trying to teach so much stuff under very difficult conditions. It just means that more teachers are going to leave because they're just not going to be able to do the job for the pay that they get. So you know these these these, if you like technology and affordances that can be used in education, and these if you like more complex and highly skilled pedagogic techniques, which we know are better. You can't have teachers teaching twenty hours and doing it's about well, it. Ain't going to happen. Um, so it will it will challenge the very base of education, the level of you know what is the curriculum, what we should be learning. I think the British curriculum it needs some massive pruning, and that's you know that's been well recognised with most recent reports that you just there's there's too much stuff being taught, and a lot of it perhaps is not useful for real world activities. So there needs to be a lot of seismic changes, I think, in curriculum, and to bring in uh, teachers who are able to then develop this level of pedagogic competence and to utilise these um, range of technology tools to to, to optimise learning experiences
0: and environments. Yeah. So to, to answer that question, I think if you're talking about a programme, uh, while I don't disagree with you and i think such a program might be useful Uh, i think uh, what is more important is uh, are the students or do the students have the ability to interpret the data that comes out from there Uh, so if they have no idea or have skills in terms of uh, uh, learning techniques like interleaving and so forth wouldn't that have? Wouldn't that also just negate the all the data that is collected? It's just meaningless to some extent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, we're we you know we're dealing with a
1: regulatory ideal here, aren't we? Yep. Yeah. It's a bit like kind of you know me and you running a, a football team. If we can pick all the in the world that we'd like and put them all together, you know, we're, we'd probably win manager of the year. You know, but unfortunately, um, you know, teachers in real world and the type of students, you know. The, uh, you're going to have students who are going to be super motivated and super switched on for whatever the basis of that, who may be able to work some of this stuff out, but um, it would create cognitive load for a lot of students. Okay, cool.
0: Okay, so that that really wraps up uh, the part about assessment uh, of uh, as learning. Uh, So I think there's a lot of potential there, Uh, and really for I think uh, teachers who are listening to this to think about what would be their strategy uh, in terms of uh, getting to equip the students with the knowledge and skills to be more regular, to regulate their learning a lot more. Uh, and I think the suggestion would be is to also use data to back up some of their uh, assessments of the students' gaps in their learning. Uh, and, but again, I think it, it all sums up to the point that it is important that we allow students or give students the opportunity or the skills to interpret the data effectively so that they can choose the correct teaching and uh sorry the correct learning method to close their learning gaps would you say that's a, a fair summary of what we've been talking about yeah it is a fair
1: sum and it still goes back to their ability to think very critically and to be able to know themselves in terms of good metacognition to be able to do that process it's all part of the same thing is to, you know, it's a bit like me with, you know, or you you, knowing ourselves, our bodies and saying, well, which diet, which are the foods that we need to avoid if we're not going to, you know, put on weight or we're not going to feel muggy-headed. So, yeah, students have got to think about themselves and what works for them and um, what feedback they're getting and what that feedback means and what's useful for them. So to interpret all of those things is all part of,
0: you know good thinking it's all part of good thinking perfect so that sums up part one of our podcast and as usual we will go on to my favorite part of the podcast uh where we talk a little bit about something that we have found or read or something that we found interesting uh and share it with everyone so you want to go first then
1: well what have i found interest i mean the thing that i found most interesting is going back to singapore um just how um just how good a place it is mate to be honest with you um you know the, the just that that feeling of you know, going back to a place i've not been for two and a half years yeah, our friendly people were um the, the the vibrancy just the old feel of the place and what i you know good model it is for other societies to learn from i i know i get you know i'm so pro-singaporean and um i do think it's such a good benchmark i mean certainly in education certainly in 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 in, in all areas of life really um um yeah uh, without a doubt and also um what i was this what i did learn is that it's not as sunny in singapore as i thought it used to be because <laughs> i was yeah. there for two weeks and it was pretty cloudy but at least it was warm so um that's, that's the only salient thing and Also, I discovered that um, not all airports are as good as Changi. (laughs) I've got to be careful what I'm saying now. Having gone to a UK airport where I arrive at four o'clock and the place that sells coffee just shuts The place that sells something else like, you know, sweets, confectionery, just shuts at the same time. And I couldn't check in for two and a half hours because staff were doing training, obviously discussing service quality, right? And when I actually went in and I asked if I could get some food, they said, no, it's not available at the moment. And I thought, well, this is not Changi Airport, is it? So (laughs) I discovered that, you know, there is variation in the way airports are
0: run in so-called developed countries. Right. Okay. So uh, I'm going to share a little tool that I found and I know uh, AI, I think a lot of it in the recent weeks especially uh, has brought AI to the fore. Uh, So I know I'm not going to talk about chat GPT. I've been playing around with it. It's amazing. Uh, I, I like it. I think there's a lot of potential there. We should do a podcast on uh, the potential of using chat GPT for teaching and learning. Uh, but that's for another podcast for another day. The tool that I wanted to share, uh, one of the biggest pain points for teachers is the amount of time that they need to create uh, visually interesting PowerPoint slides because it takes a lot of time to create one. So I actually found this uh, AI called Slides AI, ironically enough, uh, and its tagline is create presentation slides with AI in seconds. Say goodbye to tedious manual slides creation. Let the AI write the outline and presentation content for you. And with the tool, you can easily create engaging slides from any text in no time. So basically, all you need to do, and this is quite amazing, you can actually save hours in just a few clicks. All you need to do is, one, start by adding your text. Enter text that you want to create your presentation from. You can either write it directly into the text box or paste it from any source. So if you have a a script or something that you would have already written, all you need to do is just paste it. You can customize the look and feel. Uh, You can, of course, choose from templates. And then you just sit back and click. And the AI will actually create the presentation in under two minutes. Saving you hours of efforts, how mind-boggling is that?
1: Um, yeah, it sounds mind-boggling. But is that how is that different than just picking a template slide from the PowerPoint range and typing your text in? What's different? Because
0: you will. Be, oh, okay. Because let's say you have you have a script, right? Yeah. Uh the AI is smart enough to know what are your key points and pasting it on your new google slides without you or the or the powerpoint slides without you having to manually cut and paste adjusting the, the just the margins the justification the text size the font size everything is automated so i could put one of my research
1: papers just
0: exactly it off,
1: stick it on and it will create a presentation of that
0: exactly okay. how cool well, is that
1: gonna go right yeah. now that, um, how tacky do
0: you have to be to use it? It's supposed to be so easy. I, To be honest, I've not actually tried it. I've told myself I actually want to try and use it. I just that I haven't had the time. Uh, having said that, I just want to make it clear that uh, we are not being sponsored uh, to, for no. uh, by Slice AI to, 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 to uh, promote this. Uh, but there are different pricing programs. Uh, of course, if you want the free one, uh, which is good enough to get started, Uh, there is uh, three presentations limit in terms in one month, you can only create three presentations Uh, and there's a 2,500 character input. So I'm not sure how many slides that is, uh, but we can always try it out. I wouldn't recommend that anybody jump straight into buying the the plan because I think for Mm. a month it's about $13 only. It's not a lot of money, Uh, but if you are going to spend that kind of money on AI, I would suggest you spend uh, $20 on buying the pro version of Chat GPT, which happens to be a little bit more uh in my opinion, advanced in terms of the uh advanced uh, in terms of the artificial intelligence. So I'll of course put the link in the show notes. You can go and try it out uh and let us know what you think. So I right. will uh, I'll send you the link then so you can try it out yourself what and you can you can have a look. What about this chat
1: GPT? I
0: don't know that yeah. either. So chat GPT is really imagine, okay. Um it's a uh, language model ai imagine if you are having you can you are having a conversation with uh, artificial intelligence being and you can ask him her it whatever you want to to genderize it as uh, and they will be able to answer you so let me give you an example i have actually written a uh, proposal just by telling chat gpt uh, providing some parameters and what they call prompts uh, and telling them to generate a five-paragraph proposal on the topic of whatever you want, using these parameters. And let's say you want f- at least five references, and you need them to quote from these five references. You just press enter, and we did. And I'm not joking. Then I've actually seen this. And if you can, if you want, you can. We can jump into a Zoom call, and I can demonstrate it to you. It just creates this whole proposal in less than five minutes.
1: Wow, yeah, I funny enough I have heard of that now that yeah. you mention what it does. Yeah, so, it is yeah, amazing. This is really um uh, we really getting somewhere, aren't we? With these yeah.
0: yeah. The Terminator okay. is getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, that uh, you you should go and try it out. I'll send you the link. You just play around with it and you can see. Uh you know, there's even talk that Chat GPT uh has actually they, they, they put Chat GPT through a law course and he somehow managed to pass the law course. Uh, yeah. Although,
1: wow. yeah,
0: although it failed the Singapore primary school <laughs> oh, right. well, that, well, It just goes to show
1: you just our uh, advanced. <laughs> the... Yep. <Yeah. laughs>
0: yeah exactly okay so that really uh, ends our first episode back after six weeks it's good to be back Uh, and as usual if you want to write to us you can do so at evidence-based creative teaching at gmail.com once again it is evidence-based creative teaching at gmail.com so yes I know I'm repeating myself it's good to be back it's good to speak again uh, and we will talk to you soon so take care everyone and have a very good uh, rest of the week Uh, Yeah, and goodbye. And goodbye from me.